Hi, my name is Sally, and I'm an addict. <laughs> and I'm really glad to be here. You know, some people have asked about, at the end, they've usually done a question about uh, what was the person's vision for Narcotics Anonymous. And a lot of times people have said things better than we ever could say or I ever could say to them. <clears throat> and there was a guy who's not alive today who said his vision for Narcotics Anonymous years ago. And when he said it, I went, yes. And he talked about uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, I Have a Dream speech. And Chuck Skinner would say, I have a dream. And my dream is that no addict ever dies with seeking recovery. No addict never dies without having had exposure to narcotics anonymous anywhere, anywhere in the world. And that was his vision. And I bought that 100%. Um, couple of things. I got clean in 1969, and I was incredibly sick. I mean, just incredibly sick. I'm six feet tall, and I weighed 115 pounds, and I wore a size six. Um, I weigh 150 a day, and I'm not exactly real chubby, so you can imagine what I look like. Um, I couldn't stop shaking. I couldn't hold down solid food. I saw things that weren't there. I heard things that weren't there, and I felt things that weren't there. Um, I always thought throughout my using that that I, you know, there were a lot of times when I really tried to stay clean. And sometimes I would get like a few months, a few weeks, um, six months one time. And that was always without any kind of program. And I would always start experiencing this anxiety. You know what I'm talking about? Terrible anxiety. And I would think that I am going to go crazy. And when I would reach that point, I would use. Well, it was a great comfort. I found out that that anxiety didn't mean that I was going to go crazy. After I really went crazy, I knew what that was like. <laughs> I never had to worry about that if I didn't use it again. <laughs> so in my early recovery, I had a lot of that anxiety. But I knew I wasn't going to go crazy because I had gone crazy. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but it sure made sense to me. Um, when I came into Narcotics Anonymous, they told me that women didn't make it. That they told me um, that I would, that I had, how did they put it? Some, did they put it that you have two chances, slim and none. <laughs> and I kept coming back, and I kept coming back, and I shook, and I jerked, and I just, you know, twitched, and I had seizures, and, um, <clears throat> I started putting together some time, and I, I did some panels, I did, um, I tried to start a meeting in Orange County twice, and I sat with uh, the little white pamphlet at a table with this other guy that I broke into it, and we gave it six months, and then we just got sick, so sick of each other that uh, we called it quits. And then another six months, eight months went by, and I tried it again. And this time, this guy told me, uh-uh, I ain't doing that. So I sat there with myself for six months. And I used to go to the business meetings. And I would say, well, I'm the Tustin meeting. And I was the whole Tustin meeting. <laughs> and after another six, I gave it six months again. And once in a while, somebody would wander in, and I'd try to 12 step into the program, but... I don't know, they just never stayed. <coughs> and so eventually I, uh, <coughs> so I gave that up, and I just started going to meetings. Um, I always went to the 11th and Round meeting in Manhattan Beach. It was a meeting started by Jack Whaley and Chuck Skinner. And I went to the <coughs> La Mirada meeting, which was started by Mel. And <coughs> I started putting together some time, and 
getting better. And I, I, I got to tell you that it's always been very hard for me to talk. Um, I have severe asthma, and I get a little nervous, and my bronchial close up, and it's difficult for me to talk. And you know, I just usually struggle through it. I don't send my tapes. I don't send tapes to any conventions because I really don't want to be asked. <laughs> but if I'm really asked, I'll I'll do that. I'll do what I'm asked to do, and I'll try to do it to the best of my ability. You know, I follow basketball, and there's a guy on the Lakers, or used to be a guy on the Lakers, <coughs> who played for the Chicago Bulls. His name was Ron something. Uh, Harper, he like stuttered. And he would, they would always interview him after the games, and he would always stutter. And he had a very hard time with it. And I really related to that guy that he just tried to do it, and that's what I do. I try to do it, and I do the best of my ability, and if I run into difficulty, I run into difficulty. Um, this is a, a history conference, and I've been asked to speak about some very specific things. And a lot of, I want to tell you, a lot of people have talked about uh, or alluded to um, people stealing money. I never heard that about Jimmy. I heard that about just about everybody else. <laughs> and there's got probably a guy here um, that I've heard that about a lot, like world literature. Is Bo, are you here? <laughs> well, I've heard that about Bo a lot. And I gotta tell you, um, through the process of world literature, I watched Bo get poorer and poorer and poorer. And I never saw anybody that was accused of stealing, driving a Mercedes. I never saw them doing really well. So I don't think that um, there's any basis in fact to those rumors about any of us. I think all of us <coughs> who've been in service do the best we can. We do the very best we can to the best of our ability. And it may not be very good in other people's lives, but it's the best we can do. And we may get criticized for it, <coughs> but it isn't about um, being criticized for. You just do what you can and you do the best it to the best of your ability. And you walk away and you can feel good about yourself. Or you can feel like, well, yeah, I could, maybe I could have done it better, or maybe I could have done this, or maybe I should have done this. But at the time, I did the very best I could. And I'll talk a little bit about some of the early history. You know, we all have these little pieces of facts and these little interesting little things and these fun little things that, that happened. Some of you may have heard the tape from the 20th anniversary banquet of Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah, I, hear, I see some people nodding. Jimmy spoke, and Chuck spoke, and Jack spoke, and I squeaked for about five minutes, I think. <laughs> oh, that was very touching that day. Um, and afterwards, and Jack gave a very spiritual talk, and afterwards, he got in a fist fight with the guy across the <laughs> I'm not kidding. He did. There was a fist fight all the way across the floor, over the moat. There was a real fancy restaurant, a little moat and a bridge and stuff out into the street. And uh, he had called me about a week before that, and uh, he needed. He never. He hadn't had a suit. And like 15 years, and he wanted to buy a suit to talk at this thing. And so we went down to the garment district, and he tried on suits, and he was really proud of his new suit. Well, it had the sleeve ripped off of it, the collar torn. And it, we could be a little rough back then. We all have, like, different sides to us. And there was nobody more abrasive at times than Jack Whaley. Would you, would you all? People who knew him agree with that. But there was also nobody more gentle, nobody more loving, nobody more caring. If I was in trouble and he knew it, he would call me up, he'd cut hair. And he'd say, come on up, I'll cut your hair and you'll feel better. Or come on up, we'll go for a walk. One time, 
I'm going to tell you about Jack Whitley's story. One time, um, I had this boss, and he was like, you know, he was really a jerk. Like, he probably wasn't more than five, he was just slightly over five feet. And one, yeah, you know right away. Once, once he started there, he, he didn't hire anybody over five feet. If he had anything to say to me, he waited until I was sitting down or sent somebody else over to say it. And he, if, he, if he came over and I was sitting down, he'd rock back and forth on his elevator shoes and uh, holler at me. And I know, like, they were try- he was trying to force me out, and I was complaining about it, I was complaining about it. And he had a uh, birthday party, and I wasn't going to go to this blankety-blank birthday party. And I was talking to Jack about it, and Jack said, well, if, if you're so smart and he's so dumb and awful, how come he's the boss and you're the peasant? <laughs> and he says, oh, you need to go to that birthday party. And I go, nah, I don't want to go. And he said, look, I'm going to come pick you up after work, and we're going to go to that birthday party. So I said, okay. And you're going to get him a present, too. I go, okay. Uh, okay. And it was this, that was the neat side of Jack. Anyway, well, there was this guy who was um, just delightful. He was a little gay guy, and he was like really enthusiastic and really cute. I mean, he was just cute. And we were good friends, and... Uh, he wasn't going to go to the party either, and I told him what Jack said, and he said, well, uh, I'll go if I can go with you. So Jack comes over, and this guy gets in the back, and Jack's got this car that he just bought, and we're driving down the freeway, and he gets in the hassle with a, with a double gasoline truck. The guy's like right on the tail, and then he comes up, and Jack puts on his brakes, and I mean, you know, one of those road rage kind of things. And this guy jumps up and he, the gasoline truck is coming over into the lane and Jack's not moving. And this guy in the back seat going, stop, this gasoline truck, stop, the movie, stop, he's pretty good, he's pretty good. And I'm going, I never made a shot. Nobody could make Jack really do anything. So, so he scrapes all the way, I'm just framed by this time. He scrapes all the way down the side and then backs off and Jack says, Yes, I showed him who had balls. <laughs> that was the marvelous side of Jack, and that was the side that he needed a little abrasive there. Jack took me up to see Jimmy when I had about three weeks. For some reason, um, Jack and a guy by the name of Dave Brown kind of adopted me. I don't know, I guess uh, Jack thought I was as screwed up as he was when he came in. Maybe not quite as bad, but pretty close. So I tapped something in him, and he um, kind of adopted me. Anyway, he said, I'm going to take you up, and you're going to meet the guy who's responsible for your opportunity to recover. And I was really excited. Sounded like you're going to meet God. And we went up there, and Jimmy told me about women not making it in Narcotics Anonymous, and about the ones that did, did. And he talked about that, and he said, you know, when sometimes they do, and they get a couple of years, and then they go to a, they go to another 12-step program. And he said, don't do that. And I told him, I don't really I was really an AA reject. They didn't like me at all. I mean, they really didn't. I think I talked about that on Thursday, how I used to fear the rose around me when I go to an AA meeting when I was trying to make it. I mean, I fear the teacher and teacher. I don't know. I think I scared them because I'm so nuts. And I got, the way I got here was somebody in AA said, you know, there's a place for people like you. <laughs> That's why I got here. They gave me, uh, she gave me, uh, I mean, she's a little old lady with blue hair and, you know, uh, pearls and polyester dress. Anyway, she gave me a name, a name and number of, of somebody from Narcotics Anonymous. And when I called them, it came to me. So, I, anyway, I went up to meet Jimmy. Jimmy was really nice to me. But Jimmy was messed up. 
I mean, like, she was, like, all beat up, and there's a black eye, and bruises all over us. Finally, I was looking at him, you know, and finally I got enough nerve to say, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, well, did you have an accident? And he said, no, I got in a fist fight with some 20-year-old in an auto parts store. <laughs> I mean, that's the human side. And a lot of times I hear people talk about it and kind of idealized. And we're all very human. And we all have, like, really great things about us. And we all have some things that, well, the next, next time I met, I've heard, I heard Jimmy talk a lot. And when he talked about the steps, and when he talked about the tradition, something very magical happened. I mean, he really had, he really knew the steps and he knew the traditions. And he could really impart that. And I hope that there's a lot of tapes around about that because, because he was really wonderful when he did that. Next time I'm the Tustin meeting and I'm going to the business meeting and I get my old beater car up there. I have this old beater and a lot of the guys in the program worked on it. You know, after I got it to a meeting and couldn't get it back, <laughs> I don't think I had a car that was under, you know, I paid $100 for this one and run it to the ground and then get another one for 150 or whatever. But that's, anyway, a lot of them worked on my car. Bob Barrett worked on my car a lot. Um, Chuck let me sleep on his couch until the next day when I could get the car started. Because sometimes it started better in the daytime than it did at night. <laughs> So anyway, I got my old beater up there, and um, it was it was just business meeting, and the place the rent for the business meeting included the coffee, but the coffee I didn't make coffee at the time. I didn't get that habit till later, but <laughs> the coffee was wretched. I mean, they just said it was just absolutely undrinkable. So Jimmy's going on and on about coffee and up coffee and up coffee and you know I'm like kind of an impatient person and I came up there and I want to take care of business and I want to go and I'm tired of the coffee. So I walked down the street a couple blocks to this little store and I'm like as soon as you have coffee I can find you and get get them through a while and then we can move on here. And I brought it back and Jimmy goes, it's not about the coffee, it's the principle of the matter. So I thought about that all the way home, and I called Jack and I said, Jack, what principle was involved? And I didn't understand. He says, oh, Jimmy was just being cantankerous. <laughs> and he had a cantankerous side to him, just like we all have, you know, our little blind spots and our little um, things we do that aren't. None of us are, are God. We're all just struggling addicts trying to stay clean a day at a time. And so we're all, we all have our little things. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that was pretty much my experience with Jimmy until um, I got involved in World. And, you know, when I had a few years clean, I had this really low, I, had, I, worked, I waited table. And there was a time when I didn't want to do that anymore. I don't know, there was something that just happened and I think that God made me, God helped me become extremely dissatisfied with that because there was something more I was meant to do. And I would cry all the way to work. And then I would get to work and I would be okay. And then I would cry all the way home because I would think that I had to do that the rest of my life and I didn't want to do it. And somebody said, well, why don't you go to school? And I said, because I'm dumb. You know, I never did well in school, and I, I didn't think that I had the mental ability to do it. And I had a friend, and she was registering for school, and she dragged me with her. She said, well, come with me while I'm registering, and then we'll, we'll talk about some of the problems that you're experiencing and some of the pain you were going through. And I was going through a lot of pain there. And you know what the real miracle of it was? I didn't want to use. And I didn't want to kill myself. 
I just wanted to find a way out. And as uh, she was registering, she said, why don't you register? And I said, well, because it's too late. And the lady behind the desk said, no, it isn't. Here are the papers. <laughs> and I, that's how I ended up in school. And I graduated, I got my AA degree, and then I transferred into UCI. And when they accepted me, I couldn't believe it. These people nuts or what? <laughs> and I graduated from UCI. And when, when I started going to school, I, I, ha I was working full time, I was going to school, and I didn't have a lot of time for, for anything else. I made a couple of meetings a week, I sponsored a couple of people, um, I sponsored um, you know, a couple of people that helped me, and I, I did what I could, but it wasn't a lot. You know, I feel like those four years that I went to school, I took a lot. And I didn't give a lot back. Um, and then after I got my degree, a guy by the name of Greg, um, who wrote uh, the tree and a lot of the um, literature and a lot of the stuff that's in the tradition section of the book. I'm right about that, out in Taibo. Yeah, it looked like, it always looked to me like great stuff. He never owned it or never said that. It was his, but, but you know, you kind of know people's writing. And he came up to me and he said, Sally, you know, you've been taking a lot and you haven't been given a lot back. And I think it's time for you to do that. And uh, there aren't any women on the trustees who are active at this time. And we'd really like you to be on the board of trustees. And I said, I said I would. Um, and so that sort of began um, an adventure in recovery. Let's call it. There were that was a wonderful, exciting time. I made friends all over the country. Uh, it was a painful time. It was a divisive time. It was a sad time. It was a happy time. It was a it was a whole lot of that stuff. Sometimes I, I ask them for tissue because I probably will cry if I talk about some of this stuff. But it was like, you know, when, when I first got clean, I always heard about our book. And it was always like, who's writing our book? And I always expected that Jimmy would form some kind of committee and he would write our book. And <clears throat> somewhere along the line, um, this is hearsay, so I don't know if this is exactly true or if this really happened, but Jack and Chuck uh, told me about it. And somebody uh, came with, uh, with another 12-step fellowships book, and it was adapted to Narcotics Anonymous. And I guess they wanted to seek permission from the World Service Office of um, another 12-step fellowship for um, this book. And, and the idea was really mixed because it was felt like we needed our own book and our own literature and our own words. And I always thought somebody was working on it somewhere. And I kept waiting for this book that never came. Like, kind of like waiting for the go. <laughs> it's, about a, it's a play about a guy who spent his whole life on a street corner waiting for God. So, when, so anyway, that's kind of how it felt like, you know, this book is never going to happen. Um, and we always called it our book. It was our book. Where is our book? And, and then um, there's a couple of things that happened that were kind of just awesome. The first convention that went out of California, you know, it was always, it was either Southern California or Northern California that had the world convention. And the first convention that went out of California was a God moment. It really was. Um, San Francisco had a very elaborate package, and I think it was Santa, was it Santa Monica that had an elaborate, elaborate package, or there was some place in Southern California that had an elaborate package. Santa Monica, that's what I thought, and the vote was tied. It was just tied. And they took another vote, and it was tied, and people were screaming at each other, 
George, come over here. <laughs> you know, have a moment, I live over here. Come over here, I'll take it to Disneyland. <laughs> 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 once you have to buy a house, I'll pay you. So the mom, you can go in my car. <laughs> and the, somebody from Texas got up and said, we're a small fellowship. We don't have an elaborate package like y'all. We're just a small, struggling fellowship, and we haven't got that many meetings. But if y'all come to Texas, we'll show you a good time, Texas style. And the convention went to Texas. No package, no nothing. They didn't know what hotel they were going to put anybody up in. They didn't know if they were going to find a place, but it went there on faith. And sometimes when push comes to shove, we really have faith. We just have faith. And it carries us through. I went to San Diego. When I went to San Diego, that was the first convention I'd been to in almost 10 years. Southern California, I think in 95 or 96, was the last convention. And what would happen to me when I would go to convention is I only really have like 50% of the lung capacity I, I, I should have at my age and, and stuff. And part of that is from the abuse and part of that is from um, having severe asthma. And I would always go to a convention and I would always, I would always get sick from stuff and smoke afterwards. And so I stopped going and when they called me and asked me to participate in that, Thing, I told them I don't think I can because I'm going to breathe a lot of secondhand smoke and I'm really going to get sick. And uh, they, they promised me I wouldn't. They put me in the hotel across the street so that I didn't have to walk that far um, so there wasn't that much on the street and then inside, you know, you could... So I stayed away from it and I didn't, I didn't get sick and it was the first time I'd been to a convention and I got sick. Um, I went through a pulmonary rehab program and I know this is side stuff that sometimes people may don't want to hear, but I went through a pulmonary rehab program and they taught me what I needed to do to function optimally. And at first I wasn't, I did the program, I can't believe I did the steps, I did everything on it, and it worked. You know, and I have a, a, a really nice quality of life because I, really made a surrender there, and I did what they said, and I worked the steps. I had the steps. I am so grateful. I had the steps to apply to another disease. Anyway, that's the side thing. Um, is Jean here? We went up to Oregon, for, to Ashland, for the first NA convention outside of California. It was in Ashland, Oregon, and we decided we wanted to support them, and uh, go up there and uh, we all had it just crazy this is the insanity we all had enough money to buy a regular ticket over cheap <laughs> and uh, a guy by the name of Bob B knew somebody that had a twin engine Cessna that uh, would be glad to take us up there for a hundred dollars a piece round trip and so we were like oh yeah sign me up <laughs> we all got on this plane and uh it, it seated six, and um, there were seven of us, so there was a milk carton in the middle of the aisle. And we were flying up there, and one of the engines quit. And then we went into a dive, and then we pulled out of it, and the engine kicked back in. And then we went into another dive and pulled out of it. And then we went into a big dive, and both engines quit. And the pilot buzzers are going off, and the pilot goes, oh, shit! <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God! <laughs> I mean, I remember how I remember surrender. I looked at, I got by the name of Bill H, and we both looked at each other and we went like, okay, here we go. <laughs> you know, I just surrendered. I knew it was over, and I was okay with that. And then it pulled out. We had a great time at the convention. Wonderful time. And you know what? Every one of us got back on that plane. <laughs> <laughs> that's insane. That's not. 
I talked about it years later, we go, I, I, couldn't, I can't believe it. I'm going to take the Greyhound bus today. I would, I, I would rent a car if I could. I would do anything, but I would not get back on that plane. And of course, every little, you know, turbulence we hit, we would Anyway, that's, that's, that's the little side story that I couldn't resist telling. Um, I guess I, I want to talk about the miracle of the book. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to without crying. I came home from, I've known trustees that long. I came home from work and there was a, I was planning to eat dinner and go to a meeting. And there was a Memphis, a, a, a gray book called the Memphis, I think it was called, the, we called it the Memphis Review Copy. And it was a book. A book. And I was so excited. I forgot about dinner. I forgot about everything. And I was sitting down with this book. And there was a little cover letter that said, if you saw any place that needed changing, if you saw any place that needed modifying, just feel free to do that and to let them know. And so I sat down with this and I was like, so I looked at the first paragraph and I spent almost three hours rewriting that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, you know what, I better look at the rest churches. <laughs> I mean, there were pages without paragraphs. There were run-on sentences. There were things that didn't make any sense at all. And I was like, oh my God, this is awful. This is really terrible. You know, years, several years later, I talked to a, a lady that was there when they put that Memphis Review copy together. And I said, Mary, and she was an English teacher. I said, Mary, I don't understand how that happened. And she said, well, I was, a very, I was pretty new, and we were just so excited about giving out something, anything. And, we kept, and I kept saying, well, this doesn't make sense here. And they'd say, oh, somebody out there will fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I decided that the Santa Monica Literature Conference was coming. And I decided that somebody needed to take on the thankless job of going and telling them about professional writers and professional editors. And I didn't see anybody else to talk to. I think Chuck, a couple of the people, was, I didn't see anybody else was willing to do it. So here I am. And I arrived, you know, the traffic in LA is just rigid. So I got work and I got there, but I got there late. And when I got there, they were like already doing their thing, so I didn't really have the opportunity to present my great plan. And uh, Bob came running up to me and he said, Hi, I'm Bo. And I said, Hi, Bo. <laughs> he said, Y'all type? And I, I type, yeah. You know, maybe 30 words a minute with uh, 18 errors. <laughs> so I said, No, Bo, I don't type. So, well, do y'all read and write? <laughs> I don't lie. Yeah, Bo, I can read and write. Well, y'all want to sit them on the input screening committee. I go, what's that? So, well, that's where we take all of the input that came in about the Memphis Review copy and decide what chapter it belonged in. So, okay, that sounds like something I can do. So, I'm on this input screening committee, and this stuff, some of it was written on napkins, some of it was unreadable, and I'm like, so, throw that away. No, somebody rescues it. We don't throw anything away. I said, but I can't read it. And they look out and they say, well, let's put it in this pile. Okay. And then the next day I came in, I got to work on the cut and paste committee. You know, they just uh, took the stuff that came in that belonged to that particular chapter and just cut it and pasted it all together. And, uh, and I'm just going, oh my gosh. Just the next day, Bo asked me, how would you like to work on the Catch Phrase Committee? I go, Catch Phrase Committee? What's that? 
thoughts. We think about little catchy phrases, and then we'll make a big list of them and sprinkle them through the book. <laughs> <laughs> I go, excuse me, I think I'll pass on that one. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Later, when we're editing the book, there were things like, as you work this stuff, your troubles will melt away like an iceberg in the tropics. Uh. <laughs> or, or how about, the fourth step is a wondrous journey. Please. <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> and I don't think I've met too many people that their fourth step is a wondrous journey, but... I mean, maybe the end, but I don't know. Anyway, that, 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 I passed on that committee. I started working on an edit committee, and they took they have a, they took they took the first chapter. They had the first chapter finished, and they took this first chapter, and they rang the bell. And everybody who was there gathered around the table, and they passed out copies of this chapter to everybody. And they uh, they got up and they said. Line one, page one, paragraph one, sentence one. Read. Does anybody have any changes? And somebody say, yeah, I think that sentence ought to read, that it on up. On the board. Oh, I think that sentence ought to read, that it on up. On the board. And then they voted. And that's how that book was written. And I'm just like, huh? I was incredulous, just incredulous. They had a 45-minute debate in Santa Monica over the word chronic. The disease is chronic, progressive, and fatal. Some people thought the word chronic was too medical and didn't belong in there. And other people felt it adequately, accurately described the disease. The debate went on for 45 minutes. And I'm like, throw out the sentence, throw out the page, I don't care, just move on. <laughs> just please. Chronic made it into the book, as you probably, most of you know. But it was, that was the process by which that book was written. And when that chapter was finalized, I went, you know, that wasn't, this isn't half bad. This isn't too bad. I couldn't believe that that could happen. That the book could actually, you know, committees don't like books. So I'm hooked. I'm really hooked. So I go to, I, the next one is in Ohio, and I, uh, I bring out my trusty credit card, and I go to Ohio. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that happened with writing that, in the process of that book, uh, and a lot of miracles. And in Ohio, there was a, we were giving up the workload, you know, who's going to do what, who's going to work on what editing, and so on and so forth. And there was a guy, and he raised his hand, and he said, I can't read and I can't write, but I can cook. And if each of you will give me $3 a day, I'll fix you some good meals. And he did. I mean, that guy was so special. I mean, it was so special that he had the courage to do that. How many, I mean, I've met, how many of us would have been able to do that? Um, I just, and he, he only had a few months. He didn't have that much time. And by the way, uh, Bob B. tells me he's still clean today. Um, you know, there were times when I would, when we would start, it was, it was insane. We would start early in the morning, like maybe 6 o'clock or 7 or 8, and we'd work till midnight or 1 o'clock, and then we'd get a few hours of sleep, and we'd do it again. I came back from Ohio with bronchitis. I came back from Florida with pneumonia. <laughs> but I could not, I could not stay away from, away from that book. It was a miracle. It really was our book. In Florida, they voted on 
to call, they voted on what they were going to call it. And a lot of us who worked on it, a lot of us who dreamed about it, a lot of us who talked about it over the years, thought it would always, always thought it would be called our book. And we were in Florida, and there was a there was a guy who didn't have very much time, and he raised his hand and he said, "You know, what is it? It's a basic test of how to recover." We all looked at each other. Language, and um, I think Bill talked a little bit about that before. When I grew up, with I mean, I came to the program, and somewhere along the line, the cows that did, I mean, somewhere along the line, it had evolved that we would say clean and sober. If you didn't say, if you said clean and you didn't say sober, somebody would would tell you about that. And I think that was an outgrowth of so many of us come from that it's okay to drink, if, uh, just be clean. And a lot of others of us come from, I came from uh, every time I used, it began and ended with alcohol. So um, it was important, or it was thought important, I thought it was important. So I said clean and sober, and I said, um, I, you know, I said I, I used the language of, um, I used that language because that was the language that was in vogue at the time. And then there was a movement, I think it was, well, wasn't it around late 70s that that language started changing? And people felt like we needed our own language. And that to say clean and sober was like saying, I'm clean and clean. And I agreed with that, I really did. But we, but a lot of people really tried to ram it down people's throats. You know, it was kind of an in-your-face thing, and I just really hated that. And for me, it was hard. You know, once you learn something, it's hard to unlearn it. So I would lapse into, and then I would be ridiculed and um, humiliated and all of that. Um, I could take it because I had enough time to be able to do that, and I was in the process of changing it, so I didn't feel bad about it. I felt bad about some of the newcomers coming in who brought that, and for the people who uh, didn't, who were having trouble with it. And a lot, of, a lot of people, because of that, because of the the aggressiveness and the in-your-face of it, um, said clean and sober and, you know, the hell with you the rest of their lives. And some people still say that, and I, for me, we're a pro, I'm a, I, I'm a, I try to be very tolerant. And that's pretty hard because I'm not very tolerant. <laughs> but I really try to be tolerant. And I also have this little nasty, sarcastic side of me. And uh, sometimes we come down, and I don't really mean to. It just, you know, an example of that was when I, I argued for an edit for the book in Florida. And I found I argued quite passionately and quite eloquently. And I was, I was having a good day that day. And, uh, and it was ill-received, to say the least. <laughs> um, you know, it was like, well, you can't change. You know, we can't, we can't do that because it will change. This book is the conscious group conscious with Narcotics Anonymous, and you can't change anything. And if you edit it, you'll change anything. It's like changing God's word. So I said. God, as I understand, God is not illiterate. <laughs> that was the little nasty side of me, but anyway. Um, and you know, and, and it's funny because years later it did get edited, and it was a, pretty much of a disaster. I don't know if anybody knows about that. But what happened was, um, it wasn't delivered or anything, but the person who typed the copy for the professional editor was having problems like we often do and they were distracted and they left out paragraphs and they left out pages and they, they left out stuff. <laughs> and of course when when I discovered that I could just hear those people in Florida saying stuff to me. See Sally, we told you <laughs> But that got that got taken care of. Um, 
How am I doing time-wise? Okay, um, I said that I would talk, I guess I just rambled all over the place, I hope that was okay. Um, now I will take questions. No? My gosh. Yes. Um, and then you. You mentioned um, Chuck Skinner. Yes. And, uh, I just wonder, I hear a lot about him, but nothing specific. What the, I know he was close to Jimmy, too. Yeah. What, the, what role would he play in his early days? Chuck was a member of the Board of Trustees from his inception on, and he was a really beautiful person. I'm like um, somebody who uh, tends to intellectualize things. I, I'll see something, and I'll see 25 sides of it. And when I came in, I had a really severe common sense deficiency. And Chuck had... <laughs> I still have a little bit of that. And Chuck had the ability, Chuck had so much common sense, and he could just cut through all the bullshit to the heart of the matter. And Chuck loved Jimmy, and when this stuff happened um, between the office and the trustees, Chuck was really heartbroken about that, and he went down and he tried to talk to Jimmy three times, and um, Jimmy wouldn't let him in the house. And the last time he was beating on the door screaming, open the goddamn door, I know you're in there. And uh, Chuck was really hurt by that. I think that time period was a very painful time. It was a wonderful time, it was an exciting time because we got a book out of it. But it was a very painful time for everybody involved. And we all did the best we could, and, you know, it, it came out okay. Because when I went to San Diego, I could just see what healing had taken place. It was just, just magical what healing had taken place. Okay, somebody in the back had, yes. Hi, I'm Francine. Hi, Francine. The question has been asked generally about the people about the vision. Uh-huh. talking specifically about the book. Since you're talking specifically about the book, uh -huh. I would appreciate what would be your vision for what is called our book, basic text? Ah, that's lovely. I hope I can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see it translated into all of the languages um, where we have meetings. I would like to see it, you know, when the board went to one board, I was really worried about that. I, I tried to de, I did what little I could to derail it. Um, and then I just, I did. And then I just prayed about it and let it go. And I was afraid that we would end up with a book, you know, 50 years from now that, that was a little antiquated and had some terminology that, um, I was afraid it would get rigid, and we're a living, breathing, growing fellowship, and I'd like to see the book be a living, breathing, growing book. Yes. My name is Joe Maddox. Yes. Um, why were there five? Was there five editions? Oh, jeez. Okay. Um, because I've heard that uh, it was the process, and I heard, no, it was the content, there was words in this, you know, I've heard different things. Okay. Jimmy wouldn't, didn't want to print the book um, the way it was turned into him, and that the way it was in the second edition. He didn't want to print that because he thought there were errors in tradition four and nine. And I, I think that those were errors in 4 and 9. So the trustees, and I think WSO, the chair of the trustees, the chair of WSO, and the chair of WSC, um, that's my understanding anyway, I wasn't there, so the people who were there would have to tell you that. But what Chuck told me is that they signed that giving Jimmy the authorization to leave out a couple of things in 4 and 9. And those things had to do with the way the, way the word was, was that, I tried to explain this to somebody the other day, and they said, that's just too esoteric for me. So, but anyway, the way the wording was, it put the service structure outside of Narcotics Anonymous. That the service structure is not Narcotics Anonymous and not a part of Narcotics Anonymous. 
So if that's the case, it would not make the service it would make the service structure not subject to the traditions. And Jimmy was really big on the traditions, and he didn't he couldn't in good conscience print that book that way. So it was he had the authorization. He took it to the printer, and a lot of people urged Jimmy to get competitive bids. And Jimmy was a very loyal guy, and he went with the printer that had always printed the stuff for us. And that printer, that was a big job, and he'd always done small jobs for us. Well, he took our $25,000 down payment and got loaded. Mm. And so, so then the whole board of trustees had to make that decision, and there was a firestorm over it, just an incredible firestorm. Um, Chuck told me there was going to be, and he... When he, had, when he made that authorization, he told me, um, I'm going to take some piece for it, I'm going to resign from the Board of Trustees, I'm going to say I did it, and it had nothing to do with any of you, and I can preserve the integrity of the Board. Well, that didn't happen because the Board had to take it again. Then, um, when the conference rolled around, they put, I thought they were going to fire the trustees for doing <laughs> I really did. I was fully prepared for that. Okay. Um, and they, they kept the trustees and they put the material back in. Then a year later, when Kempers had kind of um, eased off a bit, they changed it again. So that was three. And then the edit that got messed up was four. And the edit that didn't get messed up was five. Okay, so there are your. That's a. That's it in a nutshell. I can. Just because that's what somebody with some time told me to do. 
So get your sponsees involved, and you get when you get uh, people with not very much time who are new involved, it creates an excitement, and it's a chance to uh, tie newcomers into the program. Am I done? Yeah, one more. Ah. Following from that. So what year was that that the initial review started? Um, the book was written between, it was published in 83, it was sent out for approval in 82, and it was written in 81. Is that right? Is that the sequence? I'm not real good on dates, but I think that's right. The book came out in February of 81. published in the 8083. Yes. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, you look pretty Right or wrong, 
Um, I mean, there was no no real bad guy in any of this. Yes. Thank you.